0: Let's pray together. Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your son. And by the spirit, you inspired the biblical authors to write these texts that the spirit might exalt the Lord Jesus, that we might know you. So Lord, we pray that through the Son and by the spirit, you would awaken our hearts and cause us to see what is here, cause us to feel its weight. And Lord, make the truth of scripture the most significant thing that we encounter in our lives, convince us of what you have made the world for and keep us we pray from missing the whole point Lord keep us from having a desire for pleasure or ease or wealth distract us from the great end for which we were made Lord make us people who know you people who walk with you and we pray that you do it by the spirit as he glorifies the son that we might worship you we ask all these, in, all these things in Christ's name, amen. I would invite you to open with me to Hebrews chapter three this morning. And as you turn there, I just want to tell you briefly about this, this book I'm listening to about Christopher Columbus. It's entitled Emperor, uh, not Emperor, sorry, Admiral of the Ocean Sea, and it's magnificent. It, it's so good because of the way that Columbus had to struggle through so much difficulty. He was not a wealthy man. He was not born to the nobility. He was of the, the lower classes. And he, he became convinced through his work on these sailing ships that it would be possible to, to pursue out across the ocean and make, make, it, make his way around to India and, and find an all water route to India that way. But nobody in the world believed that. And, and he kept going to these kings for 18 years. He went to one king after another and tried to convince these kings and these, these royal houses to support the, this venture, to, to supply him, to equip him, to give him men and ships that he could undertake this great endeavor. 18 years he was after this. Along the way, he learned Latin. He wasn't, he wasn't an educated person. He learned Latin so that he could read uh, the ancient Um, geologists and, and astronomers and so forth so that he could calculate the distance and the curvature of the earth so that he could try to convince these people to enable him to undertake this venture. What he did was really heroic and inspirational. And part of the reason that I want to talk about this is because I hope that there's a Columbus among us. I hope that somebody is going to be inspired to look at the world we're in and figure out that something needs to be improved and then do something about it, even if it takes 18 years to pursue that great task. But even bigger than that, even bigger than hoping that somebody in here is going to be inspired to undertake something awesome, something that will result in your name being talked about you know. 400 years from now, 500 years from now, people will still be remembering you. Even bigger than that, we are all on a great voyage. And we all have a destination that we need to be like Columbus about. Columbus, he would read these, these uh, astronomers and these people that had, and he, was, he got some things wrong, you know. He tried to calculate certain distances, and he was wrong about those distances, but he was right about the big thing. The big thing was that he could get to another body of land. That was the big thing, and he did it. He did it. And, and so he, he, he did all this study. He did all this work. He undertook this great objective so that he could persuade these people so that he could go on the voyage. And the great voyage that we are on is mentioned right here in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. We have been summoned by the word of God to seek the heavenly city, the city that is to come. That's the great end, that's the great destination. And along those 18 years of Columbus trying to convince somebody to enable him to undertake this venture, he was able to lay aside so many things that distracted all those people whose names we don't remember. He was, he was able to, 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 to be focused, single-minded, laser-like on his objective. And that's the way that we need to be about this heavenly calling. So we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 3 verses 1 through 6 this morning. And, and I want to briefly try to tell you what I think the big idea of this passage is so that Um, so that you can get your arms around it and then after I've told you the big idea I'll tell you how I think this fits within the the flow of thought in Hebrews to this point and then we'll look through the passage together. Here's, Here's what I think the author of Hebrews is communicating. God built the world and orchestrated history for us to know him through Christ. I'm going to say that again. God built the world, the cosmos. He created the universe. He built it And then he orchestrated history. And we're going to talk about how the Lord has built in these patterns in Moses' life and in David's life. And these things, this this history that God has orchestrated is all pointing forward to Christ. And it's going to culminate in him. And the reason God did it this way is to make himself known to us through the Lord Jesus. So here's the application right at the front. Don't let the setting the world in which God has constructed, the history that he's orchestrated. Don't let the setting and the buildup of the story keep you from the whole point. And that is knowing God through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the whole point. Now, the people that the author of Hebrews was addressing, they had a particular temptation that's not really our temptation. Their temptation had to do with the way that in their culture... Judaism was a protected religion, so that if you were a Jew and you were worshiping in accordance with Judaism, with, its, with, the, with the old covenant, Mosaic construction and so forth, if you were doing that, you weren't going to be persecuted for your religious observance. But if you became a Christian, you were outside the protection of Judaism. So there was this temptation for the people that the author of Hebrews is addressing, a temptation that involved not only societal persecution and, and sort of being open and exposed by being out from under the protection of Judaism, but there was also, I'm sure, a personal component of this because so many of these Jews who became Christians, their families remain Jews. So there's this familial and emotional pull back to the family and then there's the safety that Judaism would provide. And so what the author of Hebrews is trying to convince these people of is that Jesus is the whole point. You can't go back to Judaism because it's all fulfilled in Jesus. And everything in the Old Testament was pointing forward to Jesus. Now for us, for us, I don't think our temptation is to go back to Judaism. You know, maybe, hey, if if somebody in here is tempted to become a Jew, please come talk to me. That would be news to me, and I'd love to visit with you about that. You should listen to what the author of Hebrews has to say. For us, I think most of us are tempted by the distractions of our culture. Distractions that that come to us through social media, that come to us through our various devices, and these distractions can take any number of forms. They can take the form of trying to aggrandize ourselves in these little small venues, these little small platforms, or it can take the form of us getting entrapped in some lust for pleasure. That, that we're finding somehow, or, or any number of other things that can lure us away from the great end, the objective, the destination. Now, before we look again at Hebrews 3.1 and following, 3.1 through 6, let me just tell you what the author have set, has said up to this point. So in Hebrews 1.1 through 4, uh, his big idea there is God has spoken in the Son, and If you weren't here for that sermon, you could find it online. You could go back and listen to it. God has spoken in the Son. And then in verses 5 through 14, he he teaches how the Son is greater than the angels. And the reason he's going into that is because the angels were those through whom God revealed himself to the prophets under the old covenant, Moses included. The Lord sent angels to reveal himself to Moses. And now the author of Hebrews is saying, essentially, look how much greater than the angels Jesus is. God has spoken in Jesus. He's greater than the angels. So 2, 1 through 4, look at what he says there in verse 1 of chapter 2. We must pay much closer attention. That's the big idea of 2, 1 through 4. We must pay attention to what God has said in the Son because he's greater than the angels. And then 2, 5 through 9, look at 2, 5. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. It was to Jesus that God subjected the world to come. So 2, 1 through 4, we should pay attention because 2, 5 through 9... The future is subjected to him. The world to come, f- to which we have been summoned, for which we were made, it belongs to him. So we should pay attention to what he's saying. And then 2 10 through 18 is this glorious passage that we looked at a couple of weeks ago on how the Lord Jesus, the eternal second person of the Godhead, took on flesh, became man to suffer and become. A merciful and faithful High Priest for us, and accomplish our salvation. So God has spoken in His Son, who is greater than the angels. So we should pay attention because the world to come is subjected to Him, and He's the one who took on flesh to save us. So now three one through six, um, I, I think the big idea here is uh, God built the world and orchestrated history for us to know Him through, him through Christ, and and I'm going to summarize all this by just saying the phrase. Uh, we should think on Jesus, who is worthy of more glory than Moses. And as we work through, uh, you'll see why I'm putting it that way. So look with me at chapter 3, verse 1. And as we work through this passage, it's almost as though every word has to be elaborated upon. And so forgive me as we go word by word through this. So three one. Therefore. Um, this, this therefore... He's telling us that what he's about to say is, is following from... It's an, he's making an argument that follows from everything he said to this point. Therefore, holy brothers. That word holy comes from the fact that in 2.10-18, the great high priest has sanctified his people. Look back at chapter 2, uh, verse 11. For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus... And those who are sanctified, because Jesus sanctified them, how did he do that? Look at 2.17. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers. He The author of Hebrews is addressing these people as holy because these are the people who are being sanctified by the Lord Jesus. The people whose sins are propitiated in 2.17 to make propitiation for the sins of the people. If you're here this morning and you have this residual sense of guilt, the Lord Jesus has made propitiation for sins. And if you will turn to Christ and if you will put your hope in Christ... He will cleanse your conscience. Therefore, holy brothers. Look back at 2.17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, the people that he would save. Look back at 2.12, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. So uh, the Lord Jesus has identified with the people for whom he would die, and he's not ashamed, as 2.12 says, to call them brothers, and he even became, became like his brothers in every respect, taking on flesh, being, as Paul says, being made in the form of a servant and, and, and being obedient unto death. He became like us. And therefore, the author of Hebrews says in 3.1, holy brothers, and then he says, you who share in a heavenly calling. And I, I just want to think for a moment on this word, Heavenly with you, and I want to, I want to point out first some other instances of this term heavenly in the book of Hebrews. So if you want to glance over at Hebrews chapter eight verse five, here the author is talking about what's in the tabernacle, and 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 what's in what the the sacrifices that are made in the tabernacle, and then later once the temple was built um, through. Uh, the, the, the religious rites of Judaism. And he says here in 8 5 that these things, those old, old covenant rites, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And then he says something similar in, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. He says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. He's talking about the sacrifices that are offered in the earthly tabernacle and, he's ref- and temple, and he's referring to the earthly tabernacle and temple as copies of the heavenly things. This implies that there is a heavenly temple, and he, he will speak of how the Lord Jesus entered into that true tent, the one that was not made with hands. Uh, but, but we also see references to he- this word, this idea of heavenliness, or this heavenly concept in 1116. 1116. Where speaking of the faithful from the old covenant, he says in Hebrews 11:16, as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Now here, I think what he's saying is their ultimate desire was not to enter into the land of promise. After the exodus from Egypt, they, they wander through the wilderness and then they're going to... Their ultimate desire is not the land of promise. Their ultimate desire is the heavenly country. That the the land of promise points beyond itself too. And then uh, finally, look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, where he says to his audience, he says, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So the the author seems to be working with this idea that there's a, a heavenly Jerusalem and a heavenly country and a heavenly temple. And that when all things are fulfilled, what's going to happen is, is in the way that John puts it in Revelation 21 and 22, the new Jerusalem is going to come down from God out of heaven. And somehow, heaven and earth will be united, as they have not been since man was driven out of the Garden of Eden. So this reunification of heavenly earth, uh, heaven and earth... And, and the attainment of the heavenly city seems to be what the author is alluding to when he says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. That heavenly calling is the summons to seek the city that is to come. It's the, the call, the invitation to live not for this world, not for this earth, but for the city that is to come. You may have heard me tell this story about my friend Tom Schreiner. Uh, whose wife Diane was in a horrible bike accident a number of years ago, and um, you know her skull was smashed on the concrete, and uh, for several days it looked like she wasn't maybe going to live and then when it was clear that she was going to live, it wasn't clear what she was going to be like if she lived. and in those days, in that period where she was going to make it, but it wasn't she's praise god she's fully recovered and if you spoke with her you you wouldn't know that she'd had a horrible head injury but in those days when it wasn't clear whether she was going to be a vegetable i was sitting with tom in his office and i i said to him how are you doing and he said he said jim this is what our hope is about he said we don't live for this life we live for the life to come he said i'm just getting older I'm just in decline. I'm not going to get better. I'm not going to get stronger. I'm not going to get sharper. And he said, and if, if Diane never recovers, it's okay. He said, we live for the resurrection. This is what the author of Hebrews is trying to encourage. He says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. If you take that perspective on your life, it'll change everything. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. So this is what the author wants. This, that's a command. Consider Jesus. He wants you to think on Jesus. He wants you to think hard about Jesus. As we've been walking through Hebrews, we've been talking about how there are statements that the, the author makes that clearly indicate that Jesus is God. Hebrews thirteen eight. Jesus Christ is, is the same yesterday and today and forever. Uh, 1, 1 to 4, he is the image of the... Invi- uh, not, sorry, that's Colossians 1. I'm looking for, um, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's who Jesus is, and he suffered. He became man. These are mysteries, and it's like the author is saying, you should contemplate this. But he also, I think, wants us to contemplate Jesus in light of the Old Testament. So he says, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, Now, I just want to think with you for a second about that word, apostle. Jesus is the, you know, everybody knows Jesus named some men as apostles and sent them out. But Jesus also, as we saw in John 5, was the one sent by the Father. And as the one sent by the Father, we could say Jesus is the Father's apostle. And as the father's apostle, Jesus is fulfilling a pattern that we see first in the, well, maybe not first, but we see it in the life of Moses. Exodus chapter 3, verse 10, the Lord says to Moses, come, I will send you to Pharaoh. And, and so the idea is the Lord has chosen his servant Moses, and he's going to send him to Pharaoh, and Moses is then going to work about, bring about the deliverance of God's people. And Jesus is is the new and greater Moses, sent of the Father, the apostle of the Father, sent to save his his people. So consider Jesus the apostle and high priest. We just saw in 2.17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So I think uh, one of the things that the author of Hebrews, I think maybe is trying to get us to recognize is that Jesus is not only fulfilling the role of Moses, he's also fulfilling the role of Aaron. Aaron was the high priest of Israel in Moses' day. And and this is gonna create a tension that the author of Hebrews is gonna deal with in coming chapters. How is it that this man who descends from Judah could serve as the priest? And we'll see what he does with that. Jesus is a, a new and better Moses. He's a new and better Aaron. And he's the high priest of our confession. Uh, This term confession, it it gets at what we say. What we say is things like what what we've been seeing there in 2.17. Uh, He is the one who made propitiation for the sins of the people. That's what we say about ourselves. That's our confession. So we make this good confession that Christ died for our sins But there's also more content to this that is our confession. So there's the the actual act of of confessing the truth, and then there's the act of knowing the truth, I think, that that is included here. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, verse 2, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Now, we just saw in 2.17 again, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And now this, this idea is, here is that Christ was faithful to him who appointed him. He was faithful to God. Uh, he, he obeyed to the end. He loved his people to the end. He completed his mission. And then the author's going to compare him to Moses in the rest of verse 2. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Uh, interestingly, that line about Moses being faithful in all God's house it alludes to this event in Numbers chapter 12 when Aaron and Miriam actually spoke against Moses. And this would speak to the audience that is is receiving this letter because they are an audience of people that are are experiencing those around them speak against Jesus. Okay, so you can see the analogy. Aaron and Miriam spoke against Moses, and now probably Jewish friends and neighbors, maybe Jewish family members are speaking against, against Jesus. And on that occasion, the Lord showed up and defended Moses, and he said of Moses, he is faithful in all my house. And probably uh, that house that was referenced included the tabernacle, which was the Lord's house in a sense. But as we've talked about, the tabernacle is like a symbol of the world that God created. The temple and the tabernacle, they symbolize God's world. And so for God to say of Moses, he's faithful in all my house, It goes beyond, I think, faithful in the service of the tabernacle to faithful in all my world. He's he's faithful to me in all of life. So Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him as the new Moses, as the great high priest, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. And then the the author here in in verses 3 and 4 is going to make some astonishing statements but they're the, they're the kind of statements that you, you almost don't realize how significant they are until you sort of step back and think about them for a moment. So we'll work through them, and then we'll try to step back and think about them and let them land on us. So he says in verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glo- glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself okay so this seems to indicate jesus is the builder of the house and it seems to indicate that moses is part of the house and and this idea of people being part of the house if you look down at chapter 3 verse 6 he's going to say there in the middle of the verse and we are his house now uh, this is also picking up on Davidic ideas, as we, as we saw in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You remember in 2 Samuel 7, David wanted to build a house for the Lord, and the Lord said, you can't do that, David. Uh, Chronicles explains he, he had too much blood on his hands to build God's temple. But the Lord did promise to David, I will raise up your seed after you, who will come from your own body. He will build a house for my name. And, and then the Lord Jesus comes... And he, he doesn't say, I'm going to build a great temple to, to the Lord. No, he says, I will build my church. And then as you make your way across the New Testament, you find Paul saying things like, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? To, he's speaking to people, and that God's spirit dwells in you. So the temple that Jesus is building is a, a temple of people. But Jesus also says, John 14, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And then he says, in my father's house are many rooms. I think Jesus is saying essentially something like, I'm going to go build the new heavens and new earth, which is going to be the fulfillment of the house. So Jesus is building the church and he's also building uh, the new, the new world, the new creation. And uh, what's, what's astonishing about this is that the author of Hebrews is just working through these statements, and he's saying, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself, which includes Moses in the house. Moses is part of the created world. And the author doesn't come right out and say here, Jesus is, of course, God. But he's already said that, and he already said in one two. Um, In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So he's already said the Son is the one through whom the world was made. And now here he's saying Jesus is the builder of the house. And and I think the house implicitly is all creation, but it also has connotations of the the tabernacle and the temple and then the church and then uh, the world to come. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So to go back to Moses would be to miss the whole point. It, it would be like, it would be like if, if, if Jesus is the bridegroom, as, as he's spoken of in the New Testament, He's the one who's going to enter into the new covenant marital relationship with his people. Jesus is the bridegroom, the church is the bride. Moses is almost like John the Baptist, the friend of the bridegroom, the best man. And it would be like the best man escorting the bride into the church for the wedding, and the bride gets distracted by the best man and wants to stay with him. That would would be perverse. It would it would totally miss the point of the wedding. It would be disastrous. That's what it would be like to stick with Moses and not let Moses bring you to Jesus. And then the author continues here in 3.4. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. I think he's talking about creation. And now he's going to return to this idea of faithfulness. We We saw that Jesus was faithful as Moses was faithful in verse 2, and now we get in verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Let, let's just stop and think about that word, that, that phrase, as a servant. Um, if you go back and you read the Old Testament, you don't find very many people identified as the servant of the Lord. It's actually an exalted title for, for Moses to be designated as the servant of the Lord. And if you read through the book of Joshua, all through Joshua, you have these references to Moses, the servant of the Lord. And only at the end of Joshua's life, at the very end of the book, when he dies, he's, com- he's completed his task. He's been faithful to the Lord. And finally, the book of Joshua says of Joshua, Joshua, the servant of the Lord. So Moses is a servant of the Lord. Joshua is a servant of the Lord. And then David, is. we saw in 2 Samuel 7, go and say to David, my servant. And there are only a few others. There's some references in Isaiah. I think Job, I think the Lord refers to Job as his servant. There aren't very many other people in all of the Old Testament who are identified as the Lord's servant. So this is not denigrating Moses. This is exalting Moses to say Moses was faithful in all God's house. As a servant, but then we continue to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. And we saw in our call to worship that Moses himself is saying, God's going to raise up for you a prophet like me. Moses himself is saying, one is coming after me. And you should listen to him. And and then we saw again in John 5, Jesus saying, if you believe Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. So, again, the author is saying, don't get fixated on Moses. He, the whole point of Moses is to point to Christ. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And this gets at this, this mystery of the Trinity where the Son is the eternally begotten of the Father through whom the Father made the world, the house, And so he's not in the house like Moses. He's over the house. And he's not a servant like Moses. He's the son of the father through whom the house was made. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And then the author says, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Now, to, to get at what he's talking about, when he says, if indeed we hold fast our confidence, um, look, look with me at the way that this word confidence is used later in the book of Hebrews, and I particularly want to draw your attention to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, where the author says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. The idea is, You are drawing near to the very throne of God. And you're doing that with confidence. And the picture is filled out further in in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, where the author writes, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. So what he's saying is, because of what Jesus has done, we can with confidence enter into the holy places in the the tabernacle, in in the temple, into the very presence of God. So the particular kind of confidence we're talking about is the confidence that comes from believing what Jesus has done. It's a confidence that says, unlike under the old covenant, where only the priest could enter the holy place, and only the high priest could go into the holy of holies, because of what Christ has done, I can with confidence enter into the very presence of God. Now, in order to have that confidence, you have to embrace everything the author is saying. You have to believe, I'm not going to stick with what Moses taught because Moses pointed me forward to Jesus who has actually brought all this to fulfillment and has opened the new and living way so that I can enter into God's presence. And if we continue in that confidence, the author says, if you believe Jesus... And you're confident about what he's done. And this this is a confidence. You know, the reason you, you wouldn't do this under the old covenant, the reason you wouldn't just march into the holy place or into the holy of holies is because there are these warnings. If you do that, you will die. And the reason you'll die is because the holiness of God is going to strike out against you and strike you dead. So the kind of confidence we're dealing with is a confidence that says, not only has the old covenant been fulfilled and replaced by the new covenant, it's also a confidence that says, I can enter into God's presence and not fear death because of Jesus. God is not going to strike out against me. He's not going to punish me. He's not going to, by his holiness, obliterate me because of jesus we are his house we are the temple of the holy spirit if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope so we have to persevere in faith we have to continue believing and we have to be growing in our hope now um i i I want to point out briefly the way that the author has built this passage. This, this author, the author of Hebrews, has built this passage so that the statements in verse 1 correspond to the statements in verse 6. So uh, the first thing he says in verse 1, you who share in a heavenly calling. What is that heavenly calling? Well, at the end of uh, verse 6, we are his house. He's going to indwell us, the, the, the union of heaven and earth. And then in, in the rest of verse 1, where he says, consider Jesus, he's going to return to the Lord Jesus in the first part of verse 6. Christ is faithful over God's house. At the end of verse 1, um, Jesus, into of, of the beginning of verse 2, was faithful. And then the rest of verse 2 explains how Jesus was faithful like Moses. And in, in verse 5, he speaks of how Moses was faithful in all God's house. And what this puts at the very center of this passage is this a assertion in 3, 3, and 4 that Jesus has more glory than Moses because he built the house and he's God who built everything. That's what's at the center of this passage. And I've been, as we've been going through Hebrews, I've been drawing your attention to the way that statements at the beginning of the book are going to match statements at the end of the book. So like in uh, chapter 1, verse 12, he says, uh, I'm sorry, it's, it's, Yes, it is, verse 12, in the middle. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And that matches 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And in in chapter 2, verse 3, he asks, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And in 12.25, he says, "Um, If they did not escape when they refused, him who warned on earth, much less will we escape. So you have these matching statements. And, and just to continue with them, 3: one, um, consider Jesus 12:3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility. And then in, in what we're dealing with here in, in, in chapter three, these ideas of, of holding fast our confidence, um, there, there's a particular correspondence between 3:1 and 3:6, And 10, 23, and 24. So if you look at 10, 23, and 24, the author says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So the author himself is applying this message to us. He's saying, hold fast the confession and think about how you can stir one another up to love and good works. That's that's how we should respond. And in addition to that, I would would say that from this passage, we should conclude these four things. Number one, Jesus is everything to us. Jesus is our Moses. He's our apostle. He's our Aaron, our high priest. He's our creator. he's, He's the one who is faithful. He is our savior. Number two, devotion to Moses and his teaching is to be eclipsed by devotion to Jesus and his teaching. That is to say, we study Moses to know Jesus. We don't study Moses as an end in himself. The the teaching of Moses has been fulfilled and eclipsed by the teaching of Jesus. Number three, Jesus is building the church. Jesus is building the church, and I hope that there will be some Christopher Columbuses In this room who who are so laser focused on what they can do to build the church and that i don't know what that's going to look like for you that may look like for you uh investing in the lives of people that are going out from this place to ministry it may look like for you you go out somewhere to to plant a church or to to evangelize an unreached people group jesus is building the church which is the earthly temple of the holy spirit With a heavenly Jerusalem that will be enjoyed in the new creation we must live for that we must live for that which will make it so that we're free from the snares the tangles the 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 sins that would hamper our ability to run the race before us finally number four we must hold fast to our boldness to enter God's presence through Christ and to our boasting in the hope of the way that God will unite heaven and earth in Christ. We have to hold on to these things. We have to go over them in our minds, rehearse them, remind ourselves of them, live on them. This is God's story. And the story arc that God is telling is gonna land in that new Jerusalem where God and the lamb are the temple. We must not miss the whole point of life. We also must not live as if there is no point. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for the way that the Lord Jesus was faithful in all your house. And we praise you for the way that this author built so much Old Testament fulfillment into so few lines. We pray, Lord, that you would convince us that because of what Christ has done, we are holy. Because he was made like us in every way, we are his brothers, part of your family. And Lord, we pray that these truths would do away with our sense of alienation, our sense of guilt, and we pray, Lord, that you would make us people who delight to worship Jesus and to ascribe to him the glory due his name. And Father, we pray that you would help us to hold fast, help us to hold fast the confidence and our boasting and our hope firm to the end, we ask in Christ's name, amen.